Good evening, and welcome to the first lecture of the 2014-2015 Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues Series. And to Humanities Nebraska, 19th Annual Governor's Lecture in the Humanities. My name is Jim Linder. I am the interim president of the University of Nebraska, and I'm one member of a wonderful partnership between the university, the Ian Thompson Forum, and Humanities Nebraska. Earlier today, I had the pleasure of talking to a large audience on the C-SPAN tour of universities involved in the Big Ten. And one of the questions I received is, I'm in an associate's degree program in engineering, why should I take history? And I myself am a scientist by training, but I found that to be a pretty easy question to answer because the people that preceded us on C-SPAN were arguing geopolitical issues. And this caller herself would be a voter and needed to understand those. And I pointed out the importance that everyone have a broad education if they're entering a university program. The theme of this year's Ian Thompson Forum Lecture Series is the creative world. This couldn't be much closer to the heart of my wife Karen and I, since for many years we've been involved in the Coneco a not-for-profit in Omaha that fosters creativity. Tonight and in the coming months, you will hear from a variety of fascinating individuals on different aspects of how creativity fuels our world. And it really does fuel the world. If you think about the role of a university in society, it is to foster creativity because that is really what drives the humanities forward. I would like to applaud the E.N. Thompson Committee UNL Chancellor Harvey Perlman, and the many other partners who work together to continue the tradition of this outstanding lecture series, reaching students and the public. Thank you all. As most of you know, tonight's scheduled speaker was Natasha Trethaway, recent Poet Laureate of the United States of America. Tragically, she had a death in her family, and our thoughts tonight are with her and the loved ones who are around her. We are fortunate that we instead have another creative force with us this evening, Chris Abani. You will learn about his amazing background in a moment. Earlier today, Dr. Abani visited the UNL campus and had engaging discussions with our students. And if he's at all like me, probably the best part of being on a university campus is dealing with students. We appreciate that he has joined us this evening on short notice for visiting both with our students and for sharing his thoughts with this large audience who's with us tonight. As you listen to the lecture this evening, please note that in the program there's a detachable page, since you can tear paper, where you can write any questions, then hand them to the ushers for use in the Q&A session that follows. Thank you for joining us this evening. And I would now like to turn the podium over to Andrew Alexander and David Buntain of the Humanities Nebraska Board to share a few words with you and to introduce the First Lady of the State of Nebraska. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Linder, and welcome, everyone. 
On behalf of Humanities Nebraska, I would like to take a moment to express our appreciation to the Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues and to the University of Nebraska, our governor's lecture in the Humanities co-sponsors. Tonight would not be possible without their partnership. I also want to recognize the hard work of this year's governor's lecture co-chairs, Susan Poser and Barb Schaefer, their committee, our foundation president, Marilyn Hadley, and all the staff at Humanities Nebraska. Please note in your program the outstanding volunteers from across Nebraska who serve on the boards of Humanities Nebraska and our partner, the Nebraska Cultural Endowment. They are doing a great service to our state. We also appreciate the hospitality of our host, the Lead Center for the Performing Arts, and First Lady Sally Ganim for being with us tonight. Earlier this evening at a benefit dinner, Humanities Nebraska presented our highest award for encouraging public understanding and appreciation of the humanities in Nebraska, the Sower Award in the Humanities. Since 1980, Humanities Nebraska has been honoring those who help the humanities to flourish in our state. The Sower Award recognizes an individual, institution, business, or community that has made a significant contribution to the public understanding of the humanities in Nebraska. Past recipients of the Sower Award are listed in your program and would any who are with us tonight please stand and be recognized. Thank you. <clears throat> At tonight's benefit dinner, we were very pleased to present the 2014 Sower Award in the Humanities to longtime arts and humanities advocate Robert Nevsky. By volunteering his time and talent, Bob has done a lot of good in our state for numerous causes, but none more so than the flourishing public-private partnership created through the Nebraska Cultural Endowment. Please be sure to read about Bob in your program and join me in applauding his leadership and contribution to the humanities in Nebraska. Bob, please stand so we can all thank you. Congratulations, Bob. It's a very well-deserved honor. As you can see in the printed program, the governor's lecture on the humanities is supported by a generous group of individuals and organizations that help advance Humanities Nebraska's mission, which is to provide all citizens with access to the humanities. Last year, Humanities Nebraska reached more than 450,000 Nebraskans with opportunities to explore history, literature, culture, and other aspects of the humanities. That reach would not be possible without the generous support of many of you who are here tonight. Please help me thank all of these generous sponsors for supporting the humanities in Nebraska. During the last 10 years, we have been very fortunate to have as friends of the governor's lecture series, uh, the governor of the state of Nebraska, Dave Heineman, and Sally Ganim, the first lady. Tonight, to introduce the speaker for the 2014 governor's lecture in humanities, it is my pleasure to introduce the first lady of the state of Nebraska, Sally Ganim, who is an appreciated supported, supporter of the humanities in Nebraska. Sally.
have to get this down to my size a little bit. So I'll keep it very short this evening. And good evening and welcome to the 2014 Governor's Lecture in the Humanities. For 19 years, this lecture series has helped inspire discussion on humanities-related topics that certainly impact our civic and public lives. And I also want to share to you, too, that um, Dave is very sorry that he couldn't join us this evening, how much we do appreciate the work Humanities Nebraska does to bring Humanities program to our schools and our communities. And I know the governor would certainly want you to know thank you to everyone here for allowing him to have a role in this event for the past 10 years. Thanks to all of you for making this evening possible. And now it's my pleasure, truly my pleasure, to introduce to you our featured speakers. Tonight's speaker, Chris Abani, is known as many things. Poet, novelist, essayist, screenwriter, and humanist. Through his TED Talks and numerous essays, he has had an international voice on humanitarianism, art, ethics, and our shared political responsibility. Born in Nigeria, Dr. Abani is a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a California Book Award, a Penn Hemingway Book Prize, a Penn Beyond the Margins Award, and many other honors. His essays have been featured in books on art and photography, as well as in numerous magazines. His novels include Song for Night, The Virgin of Flames, Graceland, and most recently, The Secret History of Las Vegas, published earlier this year. His collections of poetry include There Are No Names for Red, Feed Me the Sun, Collected Long Poems, and Hands Washing Water. Chris Abani's degrees include an MA in English, Gender and Culture from Birkbeck College, University of London, and a PhD in Literature and Creative Writing from the University of Southern California. He has resided in the United States since 2001 and currently lives in Chicago where he is a Board of Trustees Professor of English at Northwestern University. We're certainly glad that he could come back to Nebraska. And ladies and gentlemen, would you please join with me at this time in giving him a warm Nebraska welcome. Good evening. You're going to do that Midwestern thing and just be like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Good, evening. Good evening. Yeah. What a privilege and an honor to be here. I have never been introduced by a first lady before. That's like awesome. Um, and, to, and to be introduced by someone who um, has been so generous and so kind in such a short amount of time is wonderful. 
So I'm back in Nebraska again. You can't get rid of me, apparently. Um, <laughs> um, and something I don't think people know of about Nebraska, I went to Imo State University in Nigeria, which was started in the 80s. It was, you know, Nigeria used to be five states and then broke into, I think at the time, 15 states. We, we decided we we're going to compete with America. I think we now have 50. We're pushing for 51. <laughs> Um, and so every new state set up a university. So Imo State University needed, uh, needed to be built very quickly and it needed accreditation. And University of Lincoln, Nebraska, not only helped build it, but set the curriculum and gave us accreditation. So in many ways, I'm an alumni of this university when you think about it. Um, so it's good to be back. Um, it's unfortunate to be back in, under the circumstances uh, that have happened, but um, Natasha is such a professional and such a gracious human being that she would want for this to go on. I just also wanted to thank uh, everyone who worked to bring me here, and the humanities, the various humanities boards, um, all the staff, and everyone this evening uh, who helped raise tonight, I think, $170,000 for the humanities in Nebraska. It's kind of remarkable. Of course, my fee is 150,000, so just <laughs> so, um, so, so here's the thing. So I, I, I was, um, you know, I've been, uh, my girlfriend's been nagging me to get healthy. And so I finally, I said, fine, I'll walk. So we were, <laughs> we were hiking and I got a call from my agent who, who uh, I share with Natasha. And she's like, can you go to Nebraska Bear in mind, this is a Monday afternoon. Can you go to Nebraska on Tuesday to give a talk on Wednesday? And I was like, uh, I'll think about it. And then I, then I got a call from Kwame Dawes, who, if you don't know, is a professor here and no friend of mine. And so he just says, so Chris, I hear you're coming to Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I only offer this because when I agreed to it, uh, I was on the plane on Tuesday heading here, and I realized I didn't have a talk. And so, and so, and then I thought, well, I'll just, I'll pull out something from my TED Talks. And then I started looking at the Twitter feeds and the TED Talks were circulating amongst you and I thought, well, I can't come and do that. So I wrote you a talk. I wrote you a talk yesterday. Hopefully you like it. Um, and so what I really would like to play with in, with the talk is sort of, um, I don't like talks to be definitive. I don't think writers should tell us how to think. I think writers should open up questions that make us think. So the whole point of the talk is to make us think and then hopefully we'll have a very uh, good Q&A and we'll talk about all sorts of things. So I'll read the talk and then, um, but, and, and then I thought that given that Natasha couldn't be here uh, and given what happened, I thought I would open with one of her poems called At Dusk um, and then move into the talk. But before that, um, I know one joke, and, and it's the only joke I know. Um, I tell it all the time, so if you've heard it before, just yawn. But um, it's an important joke to kind of the conversation I think we're going to have this evening about the idea of the humanities, um, and the idea about human character and how we negotiate difficulty. Um, because I think really th th this is the thing um, the what the humanities do in all of their different ramifications, they're a measure of the heart of a people. 
and how we find creative ways to explore those difficulties of the heart and, and hopefully completely, not disrespectful, but very irreverent ways. Uh, and so there's nothing more irreverent than, than a joke. So in my, in my many travels, you know, I, I've been to South Africa multiple times and I'm always amazed with how South Africans cope with the post-apartheid moment. And one of the things I love are the jokes they tell, and there's some, some I can't really tell you tonight because they're really bad, but this one is safe. Um, so basically, it's after Mandela's inauguration, and um, a group of people, eight people, have come in from what are called the homelands on a small plane. Six white South Africans and, and two black South Africans, a man and his son. So the plane is leaving, and 30 miles outside of Pretoria, one of the engines dies, and the captain comes online and says, ladies and gentlemen, we're having a problem. One of our engines has uh, died. We are carrying too much weight. In the spirit of the new South Africa, we would like to ask for volunteers to jump off the plane. So nobody moves. And so after a little while, he says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, still in keeping with the spirit of the new South Africa, I think we should go alphabetically. Uh, will all the Africans please jump off the plane? <laughs> and, and nobody moves. And so he says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, with all the blacks, please jump off the plane. And nobody moves. And so he says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, with all, with all the colors, please jump off the plane. And nobody moves. So this little boy in the back of the plane turns to his father and he says, Father, if we're not African and we're not black and we're not colored, what are we? And his father says, today, my son, we are Zulus. <laughs> So you should always have a little bit of that irreverence in your heart as you move forward in your day. At Dusk by Natasha Trethaway. At first I think she is calling a child, my neighbor, leaning through her doorway at dusk, street lamps just starting to hum the backdrop of evening. Then I hear the high-pitched wheedling we sent out to animals who only know sound and not the meaning of our words, hear, hear, nor how they sometimes fall short. In another yard beyond my neighbor's sight, the cat lifts her ears, turns first toward the voice, then back to the constellation of fireflies flickering near her head. It's as if she can't decide whether to leap over the low hedge, the neat row of flowers, and bound onto the porch into the steady circle of light or stay where she is, luminous possibility, all that would keep her away from home flitting before her. I listen as my neighbor's voice trails off. She's given up calling for now, left me to imagine her inside the house waiting, perhaps in a chair in front of the television, or walking around doing small tasks. Left me to wonder that I too might lift my voice, sure of someone out there, Send it over the lines stitching here to there. Certain the sounds I make are enough, perhaps, to call someone home. Natasha. The Graceful Walk. Epigraph. Culture of the mind must be subservient to the heart. Mahatma Gandhi. Epigraph. If the sand on the road to Ijesha can be used to teach a child to walk. It can be used to teach us all to walk gracefully. Yoruba proverb. 
I grew up in a culture rife with proverbs. Proverbs, as the famed Nigerian writer Chinua Achebe said, are the palm oil with which words are eaten, referring no doubt to the ways in which proverbs and their reliance on pun, wit, and reverential thinking creates a play with and within language. Proverbs, while part of a play within language in that culture, actually often mark a full-grown adult from a child. To speak well, as the Igbo say, is to have a good character, because it means you are always thinking. The idea that a proper command of speech, and therefore of language, is essential to one's character is an interesting idea. I heard so many proverbs growing up that I started to sound like a Zen compendium when I spoke. Nigerian proverbs range from the profound, such as, is it the stone at the bottom of the river that shapes the river's flow, or the river's flow that shapes the stone at the bottom of the river, to the practical, such as, never challenge a gorilla to a wrestling match, <laughs> to the comforting, such as, patience can cook a stone, to the absurd, a flowing river is not a lake, uh, yeah, really? <laughs> and to the obvious, and I love the obvious, they always remind me of Dr. Phil, to the obvious, a man who is lying on the ground need fear no fall. <laughs> there is even a proverb for proverbs, such as, trying to find a proverb to sum up all of life is like trying to tie a knot in water. Proverbs are remarkable because they are themselves elisions, elisions of stories, uh, that reveal a complex way of life, a cosmological concept, a human foible, and, and so forth. In that way, they are contextual, that sometimes to understand it in full, one must know the contextual history, and yet they have to have enough transport, enough flexibility that if they are launched into the world, even without context, if one is trained in inferential thinking, one can understand what is being said. In much the same way that Aesop's fables were stories about the moral complex of early Greek culture, Proverbs functioned for Nigerians in the same way. In Afikbo, my town of origin, there is a proverb that is simply a sound. It refers to the sound a hot needle makes when dropped into sand point first, sinking with ease and elegance that is stunning and awe-inspiring. So when someone makes a profound point in a seemingly quotidian conversation, someone may offer, ah, sah. Or when a child is frustrated and resorts to anger to express itself, a parent may make the sound which is both a warning about an impending spanking, a reminder to find a more suitable approach to the problem they are facing, but also in a strange, complicated way, a comforting sound. This is part of the power of these seemingly simple expressions, that they are both Zen koan, forcing us to rethink the ways in which we approach the world, a mnemonic device for people to remember complex histories, cosmologies, and concepts, a way of code switching that provides multiple levels of conversation to go on simultaneously, as in one's ability to understand what is being said is conditional on knowing all the context and reference of the proverb, not unlike Sesame Street, really, when you think about it. If you've ever watched Sesame Street as a grown-up, you know that half the jokes are not for the children. <laughs> 
It is also a way to be elegant in speech and thought, a way to give graceful exits from arguments, and a way to teach young people to think inferentially. And inferential thinking is really at the core of this, because what inferential thinking does is allows people to build a network of seemingly disparate things that are happening simultaneously and weave them into a cohesive whole that allows them to move forward through life with grace. This inferential aspect of proverbial thinking is crucial to the development of individual creativity. And even one can argue the performance of an improvisation within language, culture, identity, and thought that have been assigned by the larger culture. In other words, the way in which children and young people nowadays use text and text messaging to confuse their parents and force new ways of being in the world is a way in which a proverb would allow a young person to interact with his elders respectfully while forcing them to reconsider his position or her position. The concept of the individual in Afikpo thought is slightly more complex than, say, in Western thought. In Afikpo, the individual negotiates a space for themselves, not in conflict with the needs of the communal, but rather in symbiosis, such that the individual need can never overwhelm the communal good, but likewise, the pressure of the communal good, will, the communal will cannot overwhelm the individual drive. A kind of communal individuality in which the personhood of everyone is a reflection of the collective will, and the collective will itself a reflection of the individual. This thinking extended even into religions. In traditional Afikpo thought, the portal through which we communicate with deity was made by a diviner. And at the portal, one would make sacrifices to avert things, to change the course of things, to appeal for things. If, however, this portal, which is sometimes mistakenly thought of as a god, became too greedy and started to demand sacrifices that were too heavy, the people will collectively come together and destroy the god. They would smash it to pieces and they would send someone out to find another diviner to make them another god. I love this idea. The idea that we can destroy the gods that we make the gods of consumerism, the gods of fundamental religion, the gods that we don't really need, that no longer serve us, but which we hold on to by habit. With this kind of delicate navigation, language becomes very important as a way to negotiate things gracefully, to say the very least. And this reminds me of the thought that struck me when I first moved to America and started working with poets and kept hearing things like, so it's like, you know, like, I really want a community? Like, people like, you know, who can like be a community for me? Because I, I, and I thought, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and after a while I began to realize that what is being talked about is not a community. The what is being talked about here is that people are saying that they want people who think like them. People who agree with what they say. People who think the same way they do. People with whom they can live with without apparent conflict. This could be part of America's political matrix, which has two uh, parties which are galvanized around capital and power, one not as benevolent as the other, but the benevolent one still galvanized around power. Coming as I do from another culture where a third party is always a play that disrupts things, say in England, the Labour Party, this kind of idea of communities that serve our own self-reflection is a strange idea. 
I'm more used to communities that are as fraught with daily negotiations as, say, one might find in modern Jerusalem between, say, an Arab Jew, a Jew, a Christian, and perhaps even an atheist who are neighbors and friends and who have to drink at the same bar. Language in these circumstances becomes the only way to hold complex and contradictory thoughts and emotions without any violence resulting and with all the parties able to move forward in total function, even if only in an ideal state. The kind of linguistic thinking a repartee needed is provided with the ways in which proverbs and plays within language themselves provide an inferential way of speaking and negotiating. I, I should explain a little bit about inferential and direct. Um, in America, we speak directly but hear inferentially but think we hear directly. So, uh, if, but when I was growing up, everything was a proverb. And so if, if I was... Um, Say you were a kid and you were hanging out with your parents and they were talking to another grown-up and you were acting out. My, my, my dad would just look at me and say things like, um, if you keep doing that, very, very soon you'll be counting your tongue with your teeth. <laughs> what now? <laughs> but it's sufficiently confusing enough to arrest the, <laughs> the behavioral problem. So what starts to happen is that you grow up uh, never never really, the idea is that if you are a thinking person, you don't need to be told what to do. Uh, in fact, we do it unconsciously still. People often don't say, take the garbage out. They say things like, that garbage won't take itself out. And so, and so this is really what inferential thinking is, whereas in America, we, we, we have come to the point where we want to consume everything directly and not have to think about it. So it's just a slight difference in, in, in thought. Um, so in America, being used more to direct thinking and speaking, um, what has happened is that we have reduced language often to its mostly transactional levels, uh, stripping it of symbolism and of that constant dialectical juggling that uh, other cultures have to contend with all the time, the way in which everything you say is loaded with something else and is loaded. I, I, you know, I come to think about it, I think Midwesterners do it, maybe Southerners do it better. You know how when the Southerners look at you and go, oh, bless. <laughs> <laughs> They're not really blessing you, are they? <laughs> so so it's, I suppose it's wrong to say all America. I'm thinking more of a contemporary American culture in that sense. Um, so what this does is it makes it easier for us not to have to wrestle with difficult concepts and thoughts and prevailing cultural norms and the problems of communal living such as racial and gender and disability and other forms of difference that we would otherwise have to navigate more directly. So we have kind of created a kind of inferential directness, if I can play with that for a minute. Um, which is really uh, interesting. Uh, in other cultures, language continues to serve not for communication but towards self-understanding. The communication or the transactional parts of language come secondary, which is why if you went up to someone in, uh, at least an older person in a Nigerian culture and you said, so I came about the file, they would say, oh, they didn't tell you how to talk. Nobody taught you how to talk. Because what you start with is like, hello, hello. So how are your people? Ah, oh, they're good, they're good. Ah. So how are you finding the day? Ah, oh, it's a good day, it's a good day, it's a good You know, we can't complain, but you know, and this goes on for like 20 minutes before, before. It's not unlike a Nigerian question. If you ever, like, if you ever have a Nigerian in the audience asking someone a question, it's fascinating. Uh, they usually, it happens to me all the time. They say, oh, Mr. Banya, I have a question. And it starts with, uh, well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on your speech. It's a very good speech. And um, by, by incident, it's your brother 
Charles Abani because I think I went to school <laughs> and then there's this whole unpacking of family history and then they have a quarrel with something you said and it goes on for 25 minutes and at the end they say, would you care to comment? And I'm like, on what? <laughs> so this is kind of the way in which inferential thinking and cultural ways uh, tend to work. But the beauty of that means that people are always struggling with a dialectic. We're always struggling with how to say something, how best to communicate something, how best to assert ourselves without denying the other person room to assert themselves. And, and the problem becomes for us in, in, in a kind of the transactional culture we have created that entire cultures, black cultures, white cultures, uh, you know, there are, there are parts there in Escobar, Michigan, there are town, near Escobar, Michigan, there are towns called Viking where people think that they're Vikings. Um, and yet if you ask them in a kind of context where an issue of culture or race was being discussed, they would say they were white first. And I'm like, well, are you white or are you Nordic? I mean, what are you, you know? So the ways in which we have reduced all the complexities of all ourselves, I'm not just speaking about racial difference, I'm talking about the ways in which we have reduced all ourselves to stereotypes in ways that allow us to consume things quickly and never have to think about why we're doing it or what we're doing it for, or to even question the received narratives that we have taken on ourselves. And you find that even this occurs in religions where certain faiths have replaced the idea of struggle. I was raised Catholic, and if you know anything about Catholics, we, just, we love a struggle, you know, because. It's a way to flagellate yourself, you know what I mean? So, but really the idea, particularly if you're Catholic, is that you have to struggle with, the, with things that you know can't possibly be true that the church is telling you, and, and your relation, <laughs> like that the Pope is infallible, things like this. Um, but with, 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 with an abiding understanding that some of the ritual, some of the beautiful uh, ceremonies allow you to achieve a certain kind of relationship with the, with the awe that we call the divine. And the reason we trade this struggle is that it allows us to create these fundamental amalgamations that, that are based on fear and safety and so forth. Of course, the sad and inevitable collapse of dialogue in negotiation in many modern African states also clearly points to the failure sometimes for even this grace to work with people who you would think already know how it would work. I'm fully aware that textual bodies are not real bodies, that even this hope has its limits, the idea that language can transform the world, even though I sincerely believe it can, that there nothing exists outside of language, that nothing exists outside of story, and that it's the stories we tell that reaffirm the world. And so if you were to tell a different story, you would have a different outcome. In the same way that I had a personal trainer who said to me, it's not so much that you should give up eating chocolate, but that you should try and eat more fruit than chocolate. <laughs> Which is a dangerous thing to tell to a person who likes chocolate, because I just eat chocolate favorite fruit. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, um, but what we must never forget is that what we write, or what we speak with, are in the end mere words. And I know this only too well. As a young man in Nigeria protesting military regimes, we would march against bullets, throwing poems at them, and those poems did not stop the bullets from coming, but yet something powerful did happen nonetheless. But still, as powerful as words are, as powerful as ideals are, they are still limited. 
However deeply we can philosophize about the conceptual notions of death or loss of self in, say, our world of technological amputations, children in Sierra Leone are losing actual limbs, not conceptually, but real blood and gristle. The danger, even as much as we need it, is that the ideas and ideals are limited to conceptual losses, and that this knowledge often eradicates a real body and replaces it with a textual body, such that every time we say things like gay marriage erodes um, regular marriage, what we are saying is that these are not people, and what's even sadder is that we are not people. We have all become these textual bodies. And the problem with textual bodies is it locks us out of an essential truth. But still, and if we go back to the proverb at the beginning about the sand on the road, if we must be limited by the sway of sand, why not make that limitation itself a thing of beauty? This is my struggle. I am a believer in words, in story. I have always believed in the power of stories, that they shape the world, that they shape things, that they bring presence into focus, give it form, give us a way to negotiate the space between the body and the world, our body and the world, our body and our self. Also gives us ways to connect to each other, a way to build a common and shared imagination. And why would a shared imagination be important? Because it is the surest way to flex the muscle of empathy the immersion of ourselves in a fragile and vulnerable humanity. As Baldwin says, to imagine that your suffering can only mean something in context with another person's suffering. An immersion that develops compassion, and compassion, I know, precedes every selfless act in the world, even when we're not aware of it. A compassionate imagination is of more comfort to those that do the imagining than to those being imagined, as much as it may be hard for us to believe. And the aim of this compassionate imagination, it is to drive selfless acts into the world, ethical acts, acts of language that change things, that are designed to ease the passage of others, acts which in turn make our lives richer and thus better. Action is hard, especially when it is selfless, and for us, these acts reinforce our humanity, which is a difficult thing to define, but one for which we have all built religions and civilizations for. The South Africans say it is Ubuntu, the idea that we not only learn how to be human from each other, but that we are actually hardwired to be this way. And if being human is based on mimicry, on others reflecting back to us what is good, then we can say that our humanity is not separate from action. And if it is not separate from action, it cannot be separate from language. And if it is not separate from language, it cannot be separate from creativity. This suggests, though, that it is through action that we come to know ourselves, that the more we can be compassionate in how we imagine others, the more we come to truly understand ourselves. Of course, the other side of this is that action without the compassionate imagination will often proceed down unfortunate and often violent paths. The hardest journey we have to make is a conceptual one, one that ensures that the actions that we generate are affirmative, it is a struggle, and it is the path it, to it is not littered with hallmark sentiments, but rather with the difficult negotiations of our fears and failures and limitations. In much the same way that we crave and love 
certain kinds of experts because their aphorisms offer us ways to not deal with complexity. And I'm guilty of this, so I don't know about you, but you know, I love Dr. Phil, not, not because of any of his psychological prowess, but really his, his idioms are fascinating. He has a saying for everything. I think he's a Nigerian, you know. <laughs> and, but he, just, he seems to specialize in absurd sayings. Things like, you know, just because you can shake a tree don't mean you can bake cornbread. And you're like, what? <laughs> you know. Because <laughs> in that Texan accent, everything sounds reassuring, doesn't it? So, um, so in approaching this conversation today, I'm hoping... <laughs> that I can raise questions rather than present answers, that we can offer ways to help us accept our vulnerability rather than to soothe your fears. And I am trying my best, so please indulge me as I attempt to bring to words things which are often, there are no words for. In Afikpo, when very young children are learning to walk, they're brought to very sandy places. Here, they can practice safely, knowing that the sand will cushion their fall. But also their parents know that the very instability of the sand forces the child to develop very quickly the small muscles and muscle responses needed for balance, needed for function, needed for walking. It also very quickly bonds a child to the earth, the ground beneath their feet, so to speak, in both symbolic and actual ways. It creates a sense of ownership, of place, of belonging, and thus of responsibility. In the first three to five days after a child is born, their feet never touch the ground. In traditional Afikpo culture, children are born with their mothers in a kneeling position, such that the child comes out head first and the head makes contact with the ground first. Gently, of course, I'm not, I don't drop them. <laughs> but the idea is that um, this first, it is a prostration in, in, in much, in, in, the Yoruba word for it is a forebale, um, and in fact, uh, one of the common phrases you will hear people say to you in Nigeria is ofokambale, which literally means take your heart and place it on the ground. Literally just put it down, like no one's making you take this load. Um, and the action for it is to actually prostrate, which is called faribale. That a, that a child enters in prostration to his two mothers, the, the mother that is the earth and the mother that is the biological because without, the, without women, we understand there is no life. The women are the true magicians. The women actually control power, and that men can only approximate power through words. Then between, <laughs> it's true, it's, it's what, <laughs> which is why we, we, we were so desperate to hold on to patriarchy. Because <laughs> it's built of words. If you just take the words away, there's nothing there. Then between three to five days, the child is brought out of the house into the world and a diviner is summoned, and he places Iyerosum, uh, which is the powder from the camwood tree, which looks like sand, and the divination tray is a wooden tray that is round, which represents the world, and it has beautiful carved motifs around it, and he spreads the, the sand, the, the Iyerosum powder, and they take the child's left foot and they imprint it into the middle of the tray. This is called a sentaye, your first step onto the world and it's a way to connect you symbolically with the world. The idea is that if your left foot is placed firmly, the foot that guides your soul, then you will always remain on top of the world and you will never be swallowed by it. Over time, and there are other ceremonies that go with that, but over time, as a child grows, comes the walking on sand. The concept of walking that you are going to see appearing throughout this talk 
really the idea where it becomes so important within Proverbs is that the concept of walking, the idea behind it and of walking in sand is that since walking is inevitable, it is actually the one thing we know we cannot do without, then if it is a thing that must be done, as in this is how all things should be, then it should be done well. If you're going to do something, it should be done well. And to do well in my culture is to do with elegance. There's nothing else. Grace is everything. Um, in other words, that functionality should never be devoid of grace, of elegance, of the need to question action, to refine it, to elevate it. In this way, there is nothing without grace in our lives. There is nothing that is not creative about us. And this is the basis of all African art and craft. In Afikbo, pottery was a mainstay of my culture. We, my father's people, who are now an extinct people, go back 10,000 years to Neolithic times, and they made the first pottery. Um, and later people came. So pottery and making of pots is, is crucial to who we are. Um, these pots were fired in open kilns. So basically, just, just a strip of grass is cleared off of all the grass. And on the ground, the pots are piled and wood is piled around it and sand is poured all over it. Again, sand appears and the pots are fired. We call these places, these kilns, ohoho, which literally means the firing. Over time, an area of firing is abandoned so that the earth, the scorched earth, has time to recover and to become fecund again. And then the potters move to another location. This old site that is now full of clay and pottery shards takes years to lose its heat capturing capacity. Between as soon as the noonday heat comes, those places, the temperatures of that particular ground can rise to 110, 120. It's just literally blistering. And between the ages of 8 and 12, children are taken to where these old kilns used to be, which often now are just strips of road, and armed with a small cup of water, at the height of the noonday heat, when that sand is scorching, they're made to walk as slowly as they can, with as little squeals of pain as possible, and with as little jumping as possible, and with the judicious use of that small amount of water to cool their feet on that journey, they have to walk over this hot sand and over and over and over. And over time it is believed that in this way one learns to walk gracefully and elegantly, always with composure and beauty through even the most difficult moments of life. Hence the proverb at the beginning of the talk. And I was born just as the Civil War started and we escaped to London. And when I came back at five, fresh from London, uh, returning from the Biafran Civil War, I, I, I practiced this, I had to do it, but I, I, you know, I put as much drama into it as my scared and sensitive heart could muster, like literally trying to make people feel sorry for me so I wouldn't have to do it. So, you know, it was like a strip tease. I would slowly strip off one sock, and, like looking very sad the whole time. And then I'd take off a sandal <laughs> and looking as forlorn as possible, more sad than any dead man walking, hoping to inspire a reprieve, but no such luck. But over time, I have come to learn that those were my early lessons in craft, in creativity, in the composure that is both internal and external that would shape my art. In Western thought, composition creates beauty perspective, symmetry, the golden ratio, which is an impossible one-sided ideal. In West African thought, composure, composure, not composition, creates beauty, balance, equanimity, serenity, the essential nature of a thing, what we call its ashe, its life force, its thing, 
the thing that makes a thing a thing. In Yoruba, we say that beauty is iwalewa, and it means the beauty of truth or even the beauty of existence. The word iwa is best translated to mean existence, an eternal state, to be outside of time. Reality is held in iwa iwa, the calabash of existence. So in this way, iwa is connected to an old idea that holds that immortality is the perfect existence, or better, that timelessness is the perfect existence. This is something every poet knows. We are talking now about a moment, that all good art exists in a moment outside of time which is why Picasso's paintings move people as much as when he painted them as they do now, which is why Monet's work exists in the way it exists now. So it suggests that all temporality has ramification in an eternal cycle of existence at an individual level, at a communal and lineage level, at a cultural level, and in many ways at a planetary level. Everyone's iwa is always part of the iwaiwa, and the perfect balance of all depends on the singular balance of each. Ewa in Yoruba is a word that simply means beauty, but beauty is a complex thought in West Africa. It doesn't refer only to the visage of things. In Igbo, beauty, mma, is also the word for good, meaning that what is beautiful is good as well. But with a slight inflection as a tonal language, mma becomes mma, which is a word for knife or even machete, which itself becomes a warning that beauty itself is a double-edged sword. On one hand, being good is a behavioral matrix, and on the other hand, it is also an appreciative matrix. But in both cases, it is a communal process. Beauty is not a concept that works in isolation. One cannot be good or beautiful without the participation of others. But there are concepts of beauty in Igbo that are valued even more than just ma. For example, asampete which is a beauty in movement, in being free, in, in a certain kind of completeness. The way, for instance, if you've ever seen an eagle and you've seen the shimmer of, the, of water on an eagle's wings, that is asampete. So not only is the eagle as an ideal beautiful, but just the shimmer of those water drops on it are also asampete. Nganga, which means grace, poise, or elegance. Oma, which is self-awareness or balance. Ewa doesn't refer to composition in the Western sense of the word. It refers actually to an essential conformity to an inner trait. Hence, driftwood is beautiful because it conforms to its own inner trait. It bends with its own inner trait. So beauty is a state of existence, not something you make. It is something that if you are lucky, you come upon. Iwalewa is to exist in and as beauty. Since Iwa refers to the eternal constant of a person or a thing or even sometimes a place, to create beauty or even to perceive it is to capture or see the essential nature of the thing. Beauty in West African thought lies in recognizing and respecting the uniqueness of all things and all people. Again, back to those proverbs. In this case, another absurd one. If you are taller than me, you are not shorter than me. Duh. <laughs> To do, this. to do this in Yoruba, it is said that one must cultivate patience, shuru, or calmness, which again leads to another proverb, shuru, shuru, nibabaiwa, calmly, calmly is the father of character. Patience is the shape respect takes, and this is a necessary practice because it is important for West Africans that they understand the essential beauty of whatever confronts them before they reveal themselves in relationship to that thing. 
In other words, you have to actually learn to listen, to see, to allow your ego to move aside for a moment before you can reveal yourself. So this respect, which might be better thought of as a thoughtful restraint, is twofold, self-respect and the respect of others, and is itself a form of iwalewa. So to be beautiful is to be able to comprehend the essential beauty of everyone and everything around us, and we in turn become beautiful, or as the Igbo say, respect is reciprocal. For the Igbo, beauty that is external matches beauty that is eternal, such as the eagle, as I said before, a common ideal of beauty is beautiful as much for the way light shimmers through the water in its feathers in flight as it is for the totality of the eagle. To see beauty is to be beauty, therefore it is about coming into an understanding of one's own character or essential nature. The practice of which involves ifare bale, which is calmness, imoju imora, which is perception and sensitivity, tito, which is gentleness, ojuinu, which is insight, ojuana, which is originality. To be an, an artist in West African culture is to possess a cool and patient character, as they say, iwatutu, atishuru, to be patient and to be calm. If you look at the faces of Nock terracotta sculpture, you can see the composure of beingness, the serenity, calmness, and equanimity. Even warriors, if you look at African art on horseback, seem to gaze into infinity with a patient calmness. If you actually look at Greek sculpture, it is actually the same thing. In this way, you come to understand that what I'm talking about is present in every culture. What has happened is that we have shifted away from symbolism and into transactionality. I'm going to jump some stuff that doesn't really need to be said. So to make art, it seems that we need character, but not character in the moral sense, because that is difficult to understand, but in the sense of composure, the sense that what is being done deserves the highest attention and the deepest insight possible, that in fact, that when you perceive the work of art, you must also approach it with that same respect. In other words, that to be a good person is to be able to understand beauty. If you cannot, you cannot be good. It is a really interesting thing and always again foregrounds why the humanities are essential to us. All of this implies a great responsibility, walks with creativity, a certain ethic or certain ethics, but the ethics of literature is not just for writers, but also for the reader. The work of art, whatever it is, requires a triangulation between the maker, the work, and an audience in order to become complete. No painting is truly understood, not even by the painter, until a viewer looks upon it and has a reaction. In that way, by extension, we can say that no work is complete until this happens, because in order to exist, a thing needs not only intent and vision, which is where the artist comes in, or material embodiment, which is where the artwork comes in, but also the witness and confirmation of a recipient, of an audience, of a receiver. So to even be a receiver of beauty is to be creative. There is nobody who is not creative. So we can argue that a book, that literature truly comes into existence when someone reads it. And so reading is not a passive act. It is, in fact, an intervention in itself. How we read becomes an indicator of the level and quality of literature in a particular society. It is also the litmus test for the emotional intelligence and health of any society. Any society that does not embrace the full spectrum of the emotional arc in its literature, including and perhaps particularly 
is not a healthy culture, nor are its readers entirely fully human anymore. The ethical charge then is to confront our daily lives via the vehicle of literature and art and creativity. And by this, I'm not just talking about high art. You know, I mentioned earlier this afternoon, I was talking to some of the students, that one of my favorite shows is Love and Hip Hop in Atlanta, which is a terrible reality show. <laughs> but this is what it means to have the full emotional spectrum in art, that you have everything from a normal Rockwell painting to a Picasso, not in a hierarchy of importance, but in a simultaneous existence, so to speak. The ethical charge then is to confront our lives daily via the vehicle of literature and art and creativity, not to soften the blows of our complex world, not to look away from difficulty, but rather to transform it all into acts of empathy. To witness another person's grief without looking away, without the need to protect ourselves from it, is how we become deeper and more beautiful beings, and also in equal measure, to embrace the silly, the satirical, the funny, the sentimental and the romantic too, is also how we become full human beings. It all needs balance and all that intricate walking over hot sand, grace, elegance, and the occasional squeal of pain. We as readers must approach the world and the narratives it holds with a humble acceptance and the knowledge that while we may not agree with each other's point of view, we will learn to live in communities where difference and disagreement become the very fictitious fabric of harmony. We must also give up reading about others as though we are forensic anthropologists attempting to find the cause of everyone else's pathology, while the fact remains that this drive is primarily responsible for our own deficiencies of lack of growth as people and as a culture. Ethical reading forces ethical writing, and we soon find that the work we make becomes this beautiful balance. Harlequin romances that allow the sentimental notions of chivalry and bosom-heaving Wuthering Heights love <laughs> and yet give young women a true sense of power and place, a sense of entitlement to an equality that is so sorely lacking. The way male literature or masculine-driven literature allows for the unrealistic swashbuckling of action and quest narratives without making us bend to other superiorities, but rather seems to affirm all men as knights and Jedi warriors. We want narratives that allow women to be as fragile and genteel and feminine as they want without fostering masculine senses of entitlements to their bodies, to their domination, that don't create in college women a complex acceptance of this growing rape culture we find around us. Narratives that don't make all black men killers or gangsters or all white men racists, but allow for all of us to be difficult and different, for, all, for young black men to be nerds, they don't even have to be cool, that they can just build Star Trek replica ships and have, <laughs> and have cosplay and be called Kwame at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that allow rap and hip-hop artists to create beautiful songs without the pressure to perform such exaggerated masculinities. This is the power of a creative culture, of creativity. The symbiotic relationship between the dreamer and the builder, the maker and the recipient. If we must read, then we must do so gracefully. How are we doing on time? Good? Two more pages. I was born in December 1966 in a small Igbo town in southeastern Nigeria called Afikbo. My father would claim later that my mother's protracted labor 72 hours was what was actually the catalyst for the Biafra Nigerian Civil War that began. <laughs> <laughs> Afikbo was a small, rather obscure fishing town at the end of a dusty road going nowhere. 
It became important in that war because that dusty road ended in the third largest river in the country and offered the perfectly secondary access point into the Igbo homelands, allowing the Nigerian troops to pincer the rebels between the hills of Unsuka in the north and that river, the Cross River, in the south. My mother was making lunch when my uncle came running to the house. He breathlessly told her that the Nigerian army had landed at Ndibe Beach three miles from our house and that they were marching into town. He didn't think it would be a good idea if she were there when they arrived. My father was out, and so my mother gathered my three elder brothers, Mark, eight, Charles, six, Greg, four, and me, barely a week old, and as much stuff as she could carry or make the boys carry. Important documents, passports, water, some crackers, a lantern, me, and an umbrella. And as we made our way through the long lines of refugees fleeing our town, we were to see many umbrellas as though everyone had grabbed one to protect himself or herself from this reign of war of sorrow. My father found us on that road, walking to a neighboring town of Eda where there was a Catholic mission. He picked us up and as we drove the rest of the way, our car threading the needle of road packed with refugees, that car marked a short-lived privilege. War levels the playing field sometimes, and what it doesn't level, it changes forever. And just like that, you wake up one day and lose everything by lunchtime. We parted ways with my father that December 1966 at that Catholic mission in Eda, where we had gone to take refuge. My father joined the newly minted Biafran army and stayed back to fight while we left with a ragtag party of refugees that included some missionaries. Our destination was a small western Igbo town of Uli, where the Biafran army had turned a highway into a landing strip for the Biafran Air Force and the planes flying in with relief and aid. We would meet up with my father once more in 1967 when he found us at a refugee camp in Mbise halfway on our way to this place. He returned to the war a week later, leaving my mother pregnant with my sister Stella. The journey from Edda in 1966 to Uli Airstrip in 1968, where we boarded a plane first for the island of Sao Tome, then on to Lisbon, and then on to London, a distance of only 200 miles, took two years instead of the three to four hours it should have. The dangerous trip was made more so because my mother, with four young children and one on the way, was a white English woman. And two months before we got on that plane out of the country, my mother gave birth to my sister in a hospital that was being evacu evacuated during a bombing raid. While the rest of the patients were moved to a safer location in a primary school a couple of miles away, my mother had to stay behind in the hospital locked in labor as bombs rained down from the Nigerian Air Force MiG planes, attended only by the Irish nun who was a midwife, sister Toomey, and a terrified 18-year-old nurse whom my mother remembers as Angela. Sister Toomey sat with my mother, drinking Earl Grey tea and eating cookies, getting up occasionally to wheel my mother's bed from ward to ward ahead of the bombs, a bizarre game of musical beds. My sister screamed into the world 30 minutes before the hospital was completely destroyed. And so even in moments of death, we are blessed with life and the gifts of hot tea and cookies. And even this is sometimes the grace of walking, or rather surfing a bed from ward to ward ahead of a bomb. But before she died seven years ago, my mother told me, the thing about difficult times, about loss, is that we forget the joys. We forget that even in the falling, we were often always flying. So, Lincoln, may you walk gracefully. May the sand of the road be kind to you, burn you only a little bit. May you learn not only balance, but the art of flying while you fall. 
and may you live a creative and elegant life. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, you're very kind. Um, now I can see you. The trick is to take your glasses off and then I don't see you and then, and then I'm not so nervous. <laughs> so Chris, this is how we're doing it. Okay. Uh, so this is like a presidential debate. Um, <laughs> Ghana versus Nigeria. I've, I've just, uh, my name is Kwame Dawes. I'm in the English department at the University of Nebraska. Just a couple of quick things I would say before we, we get into the Q&A session. And Chris, thank you so much for that wonderful lecture. Thank you. Thank you. Um, now, a couple of things. I'm going to moderate this sort of interview situation, but if you have questions that you'd like Chris to answer, there are ushers in each of the aisles to collect your written questions and bring them to the stage. Again, there's a spot in your program to write down questions and tear out for the ushers, and you can also submit questions using the hashtag thingy, N-E, GovLecture on Twitter. We're so hip in Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> I will also remind you that at the end of the evening, Chris will be in the lobby signing copies of his books. Now, while the ushers are collecting questions, I'd like to um, ask a question that, that came to mind um, listening to the talk and, and thinking about it, Chris. Um, it's curious because you've talked about creativity, and I love that, that wonderful proverb, and then the idea of the elegant walk and the graceful walk and so on. But I'm, I'm always struck by an artist talking about the value of art um, to people who may not really think that art is, 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 is a critical element of, of society. Um, needless to say, as a writer, I'm deeply appalled that anybody would have such a notion. Um, <laughs> but I want to ask you, Chris, what happens if, if, if we took away the artist, if we took away the writer, what do we have left in a society? What, 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 what are the implications of the absence of that creative impulse? Well, um, so, uh, thank you for starting with a very easy question, by the way, Kwame. Um, <laughs> I try. Well, well there, there is nothing. Um, so, every time there's an archaeological excavation, we don't, we don't talk about, you know, the amazing map, you know, geography or the amazing uh, physicists of, of ancient Rome. We, we talk about the art. And the truth of the matter is that, you know, I, I'm African, so my concept of what is recent is different. You know, like, so to an African, when they say just the other day, they're talking about 400 years ago. So <laughs> the separation between this idea of arts and sciences is as recent as the 16th century. With, with the Renaissance or the 15th century. Um, and I still would argue that m most of the people we think of as the most amazing scientists are artists. You cannot imagine 
uh, uh, Einstein and not imagine him as an artist. I mean, even the way he spoke about things. Uh, there's nothing more elegant than E equals MC squared. There's nothing more elegant than mathematics. Um, it, the quarrel is always with the technicians. You know, as my father was saying, you know, the people who make the cars are great, then the mechanics mess them up. So, so I think that there really is no separation between what is artistic and what is not artistic. And I would argue um, that everything is artistic, that, that it's simply a question of how we have come to assign value. We have a hierarchy of value. But I remember as a kid, you know, the mysteries of makeup. Like, you know, you're a seven-year-old boy and you're watching your mother transform in an evening to go out. And the complex, because nowadays, you know, Maybelline makes it all easy. But, but my mother had to kind of pound the powder and mix several <laughs> different ones to get different foundations. It was almost like being an alchemist. Um, but but the, the way people cook, you know, like, like almost everyone I know does not cook with a recipe. They just cook with what they find. Uh, that even the way people walk, um, everything that people do is driven towards art because it seems to, to me that while everything that the sciences have produced makes uh, life possible, art makes it worthwhile. So I really don't know why, I don't know if you should privilege one without the other. I think it's impossible to separate the two, but I think you can't talk about the world you live in. Language was not invented by a technician. <laughs> Language was invented by artists. People who pointed to things in the sky and came up with names for them, who noticed that there is a, there's a gap. But, I mean, it seems so obvious now, but when you think about the conceptual leap it takes to point to a star and then realize that there's a gap between your finger and the thing you're pointing to, I mean, this, these are incredible leaps forward in human evolution. And so I think that all, all people who make beautiful, all good accountants are amazing artists, you know, in, and the prisons are full of the really, you know, the ones that are not so good. <laughs> <laughs> So that's what I would say. I would say there's yeah. no way to be human without art. It just it doesn't exist. And if it were even possible, it would, it would, we, we would. So here's an interesting thing. In Yoruba, the word for human beings is eneon. Eneon means the thinking ones. And so to be a human being is part of the evolutionary process. Otherwise, they call you eneon, which means meat. So basically, everyone would be a side of beef. We would be devoid of consciousness. We would be devoid of anything that makes anything worthwhile. Good. Now, I've got a request here. There's a question. It's not quite a question. Well, it's phrased as a question, but it's really not. Um, Is it a command? It's a command. Okay. And, I can um, do commands. I, well, we'll see. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the person would like you to recite one of your poems uh, for us. Now, I know for a fact that you, at you remember at least a few lines of some of your poems. Uh, I have you did. I have Kindle. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you can know, pick, I'm, I'm, you can pick something interesting. I'm, I'm always amazed by people who can remember their own poems. It's embarrassing. I'm, I think it's a. I I'm think showing I'm, off. I'm jealous of them. So I they're showing shame. off, Chris. That's that, what. That's what doing. I say. I say. All I show say, offs. I say they're showing off. Yeah, completely. Um, Okay, so, you know, the moment I want it, of course, it's not happening. So, um, let's see. Let me see if I can remember one short poem. Um, let's do a love poem. Because people always think I do dark stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, when I was growing up, my mother, 
My mother, you know, as, as with most marriages, anyone who's been married a long time knows that it's only, you know, it's just prison that keeps you from murdering each other. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, my parents' relationship was complicated. And, and, and my mother kept these copious diaries. And as soon as they were full, she would burn them. So I never knew what was in them. And so I was writing a book about her, and I tried to come up with... Um, an imagined entry, and, and I'm probably going to mess this up, but let's give it a try. Daphne's diaries on a wish to precious to speak. I want a man who loves all of me, who doesn't want to change any of me. Now I see I'm, I've lost it already, I can't. Uh, give me two minutes. While we do another question, I'll find the poem. Okay. I don't want to mess it up. It's a good poem, and I might get a phone number tonight. That's all right. I'm kidding. <laughs> God, <laughs> that's what my niece says to me all the time. God, Uncle Chris. You want to tackle a question then? Yeah, let's do a question. Well, okay, this is an interesting question, he says. Um, the poet Wendell Berry asked the question, what are people for? And what is your answer to that question? What, what are people for? What are people for? What are people for? Yeah. Wow, Nebraska's not playing tonight. Outs. <laughs> Um, right, it was Wendell Berry, so. Yeah, Wendell, you know. So, um, I think, uh, this is what I think, that um, the only impetus in the universe is life, and that life is always reaching for life. And so what people are for, I think in many ways, is for the universe to um, have a record, a witness of itself reaching always for itself in ever-growing ways. Okay, that's a quotable. Yeah. <laughs> We're friends, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Um, I'll give you another question here, which, which I'm not sure I understand, but I'm going to read it anyway. Um, so using the logic of that cat in the constellation of fireflies, what do you see for us with our light, our porches, fine hedges, and those of us without. Do you understand this? Read it again. I think I Okay, I I'll try. Um, I, because I, 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 I don't. Poet, poet wrote but, that but here's the thing. I suspect it's actually a very profound question. So using, using the logic of the cat in the constellation of fireflies, what do you see for us with our light, our porches, and fine hedges, and those of us without? Um, I, I, I don't think that these are, these are beautiful questions and difficult. Um, I, I don't think that um, we are ever without. I, I think that um, we're always surrounded by immeasurable beauty. We're always surrounded by the choice for immeasurable beauty. 
um, the question is a question of noise. Mm -hmm. And I'm writing a book of essays right now about the difficulty of being an American, because it's a really difficult thing to be. Um, and it's confusing to say that because, and it's precisely because everyone thinks every American has so much privilege, and, and, and yet this is not true. And the very idea that every American has so much privilege actually keeps Americans from having, a lot of Americans from having privilege. But um, I think that what, what keeps us from, from being able to live in these moments where we can simultaneously look at the fireflies and, and respond to the call of the day-to-day -day life is noise. And I'm thinking of noise in terms of things like poverty, um, in terms of things like class. Um, I taught students who often didn't have anything um, in, in UC Riverside. Um, and, and always, the, the acquisition of education was partly because they needed jobs to take care of their families, but also that there's this constant pull from the communities that they were trying to extricate themselves from to return to lifestyles they didn't want. And I'll never forget teaching the idea of um, moral luck. Moral luck is, to put it best, is there's that famous photograph with a, of the Ethiopian child dying during the mm -hmm. famine. Mm -hmm. And the photographer has to wait for the child to die to get the perfect right. picture. And then moral luck says, what if you had forgotten to load the film in the camera? So I'm trying to explain this concept. And finally, this young man who himself had just left a gang. In fact, his gang had paid to have his tattoos removed so he could go to college. They used to come to my office to check up on him. He looked at me and he said, so Professor Barney, so what you're seeing is moral luck is like when you're being jumped into a gang and you have to run a train on a girl, and you get to the front and it's your sister. This is the kind of noise I'm talking about. Mm. And this noise is prevalent. This is the noise that causes Ferguson. This is a noise. It's, it's a noise that affects white people, black people, people of different. So, so I think that, that, that that's really what the problem is. That in fact, the poem captures it. In, it's, instead of it being the gentle call of an owner to the cat, if you can imagine there's this constant buzz of freeway, traffic that's going to kill you at any moment, and here's the, the firefly. That's the struggle. So I think that in that case, the, the real difficult thing is to learn how to take the fireflies into the noise with you. Mm. I don't have an answer for it, but I believe that the struggle to do that is actually enough to create some kind of redemption. That's good. I've got let, me, let me read a poem before we do Okay, that. you've got the poem I've, there? I found yeah. a right. poem. I couldn't yeah. find that one. So after you do that, we'll ask one question, and then okay. I think we'll be able to wrap so, so this poem is from Sanctificum, which is a, a, my most recent poetry book, and it's one long, it's one long the whole book is one long poem. Um, and it's written to the Catholic Order of Mass and to a Bach symphony. Um, and this is a section on Los Angeles and love and my childhood and my parents. Uh, in the, and the, the section is called Pilgrimage, and this, the poems are broken up into sections and notations. So, Pilgrimage number one. Nothing as definite as prayer. A hand cups a shadow. A heart is laid bare, open as a flower. Somewhere between care and cacophony, Los Angeles is alive. The city tonight stands outside of everything. We come tonight, we come to light. The city is a liar. May I find my way? 
Los Angeles is a dream we cannot bear. I think of streets black as any river and beer, and over loud music a woman calls to her lover, but there is no truth here. The city is awash with lights. Even this sacrifice will not save us. I say hibiscus and I mean innocence. I say guava and I mean childhood. I say mosquito netting and I mean loss. And I say father and it means only that. Happen that we all dream but the sea is only sea. Happen that we call upon God, but it is only a, prayer, a breeze ruffling a prayer book in a small church where benches groan in the heat. Outside, a peacock will not be quiet. There are so many ways I could, undie the night, I could undo the night my father died, if only I could find the fastenings of time. Here, the green grass is green, even with the abundance of home, even with the weight of exile. There is a tree in my father's backyard under which my umbilical is buried. There is no metaphor here. And bathing on a zinc sheet one night, I sliced my ankle to bleed my umbilical again. Look, there is a simple math to loss, to self, to aubergines. I can sing my father's lineage back half a millennia, but here in Starbucks, I struggle with Oprah to find myself. Which is to say, I could accept the labels before me, but only a deeper cut will suffice. I am not an American, though I want to be. I am not a Nigerian, even though I have the melancholy. I am something deeper still. For now, Igbo, a placeholder, also sometimes druid on my mother's side and a red passport. People say, Christ, if I have seen what you've seen, Christ, mercy, Jesus, and this is my cry too. I have seen, but I am still lost. The fog will not part no matter how long I strike my staff against stone. There are slavers in my ancestry, slaves too. And some nights I wake with the bitter of rusty chains on my tongue and a whip in my hand. Avatars come and go and come again. There is only a map fading in the harsh sun. Some may call me a pessimist, but I am not. There is nothing gained from loss. I drink tea in the shade, and I believe in poetry. I am a zealot for optimism. Well, I think, I think it's a good note. The question I was going to ask you was simply from walking with your mother while you were refugees, what do you recall of beauty? I think in that poem, you've answered the question. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. I'm going to invite Chris to come up. Please help me thank Chris Amani and Kwame Dawes for their help tonight. And a final thanks to the Ian Thompson Forum and the University of Nebraska and all of you Humanities Nebraska supporters. Please mark your calendars for the next Thompson Forum lecture in the Creative World Series, which will be October 14th at 7 p.m. with Neil Gershenfeld of MIT Center for Bits and Atoms. Once again, Dr. Abani will be signing books in the lobby shortly. Uh, please help me express our heartfelt thanks to him for this memorable evening. Drive safe.